Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, Mike here from the 80s Glam Model Cast, and this is a tribute episode to honor the great Eddie Van Halen. Now, I'd like to welcome a special co-host on this journey, Jason Paulus. How you doing, Jason? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me along. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, there is no one more influential in my music listening and and many many others boy you know it's hard to believe we're we're over a week since he passed away and people still pouring out tributes so now jason is a news anchor in my area he's a big hard rock fan and a huge van halen fan so jay what are some of your memories or, or thoughts you want to share about van halen oh geez there's so many i mean i've got to see them in concert twice the first time I saw them in concert was the Balance Tour. They came to what back then was the Knickerbocker Arena. Now you're going back a few years uh, before it became the Pepsi Arena and then now the you know the Times Union Arena which is in Albany. That was an amazing tour and the reason why it was so cool is number one, I love the album Balance. I know a lot of folks, you know, like, ah, oh, but it, was, it had some great songs on it but they were a machine. The concert was so good and i got to meet sammy and michael so here's the story i worked at um the nbc station in albany wnyt one of the reporters there his name is chris bruner at the time he was a big van halen fan like i was he reached out to van halen's management and said hey we want to do a story we want to connect with sammy because sammy wrote I can't drive 55, as the story goes. He was headed up to Lake George, where he had a place, <laughs> driving too fast, got pulled over by a state trooper, and he told the guy, he goes, man, I can't drive 55 up this way. And therein lies the story. So Chris Bruner reaches out, says, hey, can you know we come do a story? And management said, sure, he'll do it. So I said, oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I was just a, a young lad in the business. Uh, I was an editor. I ran studio camera. And, and I, you know, before I became a news anchor, I was a sports anchor. Before sports anchor, I you know, a sports editor. And I said, gee, Chris, do you think I could tag along? Well, he said, sure, you hold the boom mic and you come along. So it was amazing. I went. Now, I already had tickets to go see the show. So... I was going to see the show, and I got to meet them. So we go backstage. That, if, as word has it, and if you read Sammy's book, that was the tour that was starting to end the good relationships between Sammy and the rest of the band. I mean, Michael was kind of in the middle. They were using separate dressing rooms. Alex and Eddie had their own dressing room. Michael and Sammy had their own dressing room. Basically because one was alcohol, the other one wasn't. Alex was dry and didn't want to be around that kind of stuff. That's the rumor. Anyway, we go in and we interview Sammy and Michael's there. We got to meet both of them. We got to shake their hands. And, you know, we did the interview about I Can't Drive 55. It was great. It went really well. We went 
back out. I went to go see the concert. The concert was amazing. You go on about your merry way. Well, not long after that, Sammy exits the band. Um, and then years go by in 2004, he reunites and don't I get tickets to the concert? We got amazing tickets. We were in the well right along the stage. So I still have Michael Anthony's pick that he threw and I caught. Nice. So, you know, and that was a great, I mean, it, you could tell Eddie wasn't quite himself. He was not as technical back then. He, and he was going through, he had just had tongue cancer. Um, and he looked very thin and not quite himself. Um, but it was still a rocking concert and we really enjoyed it. So there's my two, two Van Halen stories right there. But it was, um, amazing, amazing time. That's awesome. When I, when I think back, just a couple of my earliest memories, I had some older cousins and they would always give me albums that they were all set with. So they gave me, you know, Motley Crue, Dokken, and one they gave me was Van Halen 1984. And I just remember that mm. just being such an amazing album. And and another memory is the, is the videos. I can remember going to a, a local roller rink and they used to put the, the uh, project the videos up on the wall and they would always show oh, yeah. Jump and they would always show Panama. And, you know, it's just... Those were really for me like the kickoff of like hard rock, hair metal, all that stuff, and it's just it's good stuff, good memories. Absolutely. So Jay, like I told you, I've sent you some of these interviews. Um, I reached out to eight amazing guitarists from the '80s. Now these are guys from all over the world. All of them have you know a lot of popularity and are well known in their own right. And they had a lot of cool stories to share about Eddie. Some knew him, some met him. Others were just citing him as an influence. So what we'll do is I'm going to queue up these interviews. So first up, we've got Key Marcello. He was in Europe and the band Easy Action. And then we'll follow up with Mark Ferrari from Kiel and Cold Sweat. Key, welcome back to the 80s Glam Metal cast. Uh, some sad news last week. We lost Eddie Van Halen. Uh, any memories or thoughts that you can share about him? Uh, first of all, thanks, Mike. Glad to be back. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been really sad. Uh, a true icon um, left us, and it, it's amazing what it did to change the entire ball game, so to speak. I remember when that first album came out in Sweden in 1978. I was 18 years old, and, you know, what's happening here? Am I or he on shrooms? Because I didn't understand what the hell he was doing. You know, first of all, the tapping thing. I prior to this, I've heard guitar players like uh, Nils Lofgren and, and you know a lot of different players do sort of single note tap tap ons, you know, hammer ons. But uh, I never heard anybody taking it to that extreme. So it took some time to figure out what the hell he was doing. And also uh, the Floyd Rose tremolo system, you know, where you lock uh, the saddle and the bridge. So you can just go to town with, with, you know, if you do that on a Fender tremolo after you end up with the, playing a, a totally new song because it doesn't stay in tune. Mm -hmm. So those two things changed a lot for me because I started to investigate the possibility of getting my hands on a guitar with Floyd Rose. And it was, it was really a milestone, that album. And it did so so many of them, you know, when he uh, introduced keyboards into into metal, which was almost not allowed at the time. I remember I saw Masters of Rock at the Rosunda in Stockholm. It was uh, Van Halen, ACDC, and Motley Crue. And uh, uh, when they played Jump from 1984, Eddie played the synth solo. He actually 
made a choice to play the synth solo, not the guitar solo, and the people were actually booing. Mm. That's how sensitive keyboards were in hard rock back in the days. And it totally changed that too. Now, it's really hard to imagine, you know, hard rock bands of that style without keyboards. Especially, uh, especially yeah. Europe. You know, when I think of keyboards in, uh, in hard rock heavy metal, I mean, look no further than the final countdown, you know? Exactly. I, I would go as far as to say that without jump, there wouldn't have been a final countdown. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, people didn't experiment with keyboards that way. I mean, <laughs> Actually, when people use keyboard, they used to hide the keyboard player behind the blanket on stage <laughs> sometimes. I don't even know if you remember those times. It was crazy. It was like if you were using keyboard, you had to be you had to be ashamed of it some way. But he totally changed that. So when um, you were probably already playing guitar by the time he came out, but did you uh, incorporate some of his style into what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh, all of us did from that generation. In, you know, in 78, I, was, I wore 1960. So I, I already had my, and I grew up with Alan Holsworth and Ollie House. So I already had my, wrap my mind around that legato thing, which he also does, you know. But the tapping thing was a new experience and, and I incorporated that. I'm not crazy. I'm not doing it all the time. I'm using it on some of the most famous Europe solos and, uh, and on easy action but I'm not one of those guys that incorporate in everything I do but I enjoy doing it and it's but I have to say the way Eddie does it it's just so rock and roll did you ever get a chance to meet him? no you know what I never did what happened was when I when I moved to LA in 1989 uh, Europe were managed by Herbie Herbert who was you know he used to manage Journey and Santana and uh, a lot of big bands from the Bay Area and uh, at the time Neil Sean who, who, um, late, who I befriended you know we played on an album together and we were hanging in LA he was Neil was hanging with Eddie and uh, Luke you know Steve Luke also from Toto yes. and the three the three of them would go on like uh, three or four day uh, 24 hour party binges okay. you know and uh, so when I came to L.A., uh, and Herbin knew that I liked to party, and he said, he put his foot down and said, Key, you are not going to hang with the, with those guys because it's going to kill you. <laughs> so he actually didn't, he didn't let me trip, uh, meet Eddie and, and the guys. Oh, wow. One of those. And later he actually banned Neil to meet them too. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Wow. So I, I guess Eddie was a party animal for sure, but who wasn't back in the days? Just amazing. What a, yeah, what a magic gift he had. You know, it's amazing. It's really hard to compare it to anybody else. So what's going on with you, man? Uh, are you working on some material? Yeah, I mean, this uh, COVID thing has definitely changed the game plan. So since March, I've been in, locked up in the studio. I just wrote a, a full album with my with my second solo project, so to call it. It's called Out of This World, like the Europe album. Oh, and great. It, it, it features a singer from uh, Fair Warning, Tommy Hart, um, Darby Todd from my from Kim Marcello band, and Ken Sand in the rhythm section for my solo band. We just, we're, we're signing with JVC Victor in Japan, and uh, we're going to finish. Uh, we have five songs down already. We're going to finish the five songs in a couple of weeks and release in Japan is early next year. 
don't know exact release dates for the EU and, and America, but it's coming soon. And then when we when we go on tour, we don't really know. I mean, we, we've been talking about doing something uh, the spring of 2021, like a double bill with uh, Vandenberg. Oh, cool. Well, that sounds great, Key. Uh, I'll, I'll keep an eye out for that. And uh, once again, really appreciate your thoughts and insight on uh, Eddie Van Halen. Oh, no, absolutely. R.I.P. Eddie was the best, man. I know you knew Eddie and, and you were close to Eddie. Are there some stories that you could share with us? Well, as you mentioned, uh, I've known Ed since the, uh, the mid-80s. The first time I met him was at a Keel recording session. We were doing tracks for... Uh, the Final Frontier in 1985, and uh, you know Gene Gene Simmons was producing producing the album, and he was friends with Ed and brought him down to the studio one day, and I happened to be working that day, <laughs> so it was a, a little intimidating meeting him the first time, but uh, he put everybody at ease. He's a great guy, and uh, that was the first time that I met Ed was in '85, and. Um, the following year, uh, Keel in '86, Keel played the uh, played the Texas Jam with uh, Van Halen headlining, and uh, I'm pretty sure Ed had something to do with getting us on the bill. That was the continuation of uh, our friendship. And if we fast forward a few more years after that, my second band, Cold Sweat, was rehearsing next door to the band Private Life, which was signed to Warner Brothers, and Ed was producing that album. And so we saw Ed quite a lot that summer because he was there just about every day, and uh, he actually jammed with a couple of the guys in Cold Sweat. That was posted on Facebook the other day. Uh, Eric Gammons and uh, and Chris McLernan posted the audio uh, from that. And then we started bowling, (laughs) which was the funniest (laughs) thing because... I, I was always a bowler, and uh, I was bowling every Sunday with a bunch of guys, Tommy Thayer, Bob Kulik, and a bunch of other guys. Uh, we bowled down at Jerry's Deli, which was very close to where Ed lived. As a lark, you know, we just invited him out. He, we invited him out. He shows up, and he starts bowling with us. You know, he came down there several times to bowl with us. He loved to bowl. Another interesting memory was he, he threw a party for uh, Valerie for one of her birthdays, and he rented out a whole bowling alley. And he invited all, all of us, the Cold Sweat guys, to uh, to the party. So, nice. Um, yeah, so that, that would have been 1990, 89 and 90, when all that bowling stuff was going down. Just You know, I kind of continued to just stay in touch with him. After I bought my uh, first Ferrari, uh, I reached out to him because I know he was a car guy. He owned Lamborghinis and Audis and Porsches. And, uh, and I told him I'd finally joined the, the boys club, you know, by <laughs> buying a car. And if he'd ever be up for driving, to let me know. And sure enough, he took me up on the offer. And uh, uh, last three or four years, um, I'd been driving with Ed and Al here in Southern California. We'd just uh, go out on these uh, long drives that were open roads and not too many people. You know, both of those guys had high-end sports uh, Porsches, uh, GT2 RSs and GT3 RSs, and it was me and my puny Ferrari. (laughs) But uh, that was... That was uh, more recent, and uh, we had some really nice times together on the drives. You know, I, I never spoke music with him. It was always about cars. <laughs> nice. But he, he was—he he was certainly a car guy. He—he he owned a lot of cars throughout the years. I think he told me he, he had a, a Miura, a, a, a Lamborghini Miura, which I think he said he got almost a million dollars for. Those cars are 
the Miura S's are very, very rare. You know, they command a lot of money. So, you know, I feel very lucky that uh, I had, you know, this, this friendship with him throughout the years. And, and I think one of the reasons why uh, he enjoyed hanging out with me, because I never asked him about music. We never talked music. We only talked cars. And uh, I, I think that was, you know, part of the appeal for him was, uh, you know, no, you know, nobody was going to ask him about the same kind of things that a million other people were asking him, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew he was ill. I didn't know how ill he was. Um, I knew he was ill. And uh, what can I tell you? I mean, just like everybody else, we're, we're all devastated by this loss. It's such a tremendous loss, uh, you know, not only from his talent, you know, the, 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 you know, the contributions that he made to music, but he, he was a great guy. And I know a lot of your listeners obviously didn't have the, you know, they didn't have the honor of knowing him like I did. He, he was just a really sweet guy, very unassuming. You know, obviously his, his contributions to music are just almost immeasurable. Um, I, just ho- I hope he's in a happier place right now and he's not in pain and uh, obviously, we're all mourning his loss here, and there will never be another one like him. You know, I, I can't even say they broke the mold with Ed because it, he, there was no mold with him, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I, I think you have to put him right up there with Jimi Hendrix as, you know, some of the most influential and innovative guitar players that, that ever walked the face of the earth. So that's, uh, that's in a nutshell, my, uh, you know, my, my friendship with him and going back to 1985. So I guess that's. But uh, 35 years uh, knowing him on and off. Wow, that's a long time. When you think about your journey as a guitar player, where did Eddie Van Halen fit into that? Oh well, you know, you can't you can't be a guitar player from my generation w- without having been influenced by him. Sure. Uh, his, you know, the first Van Halen album came out in '78, so I was 16 years old then. And like everybody else hearing that for the first time, you're just flabbergasted. You know, what the hell is this? You know, this this was a game. This to change the face of guitar playing. You know, where there there were guitar heroes before Van Halen. You know, you had obviously the big three or four with uh, Hendrix, Page, Clapton, Beck. I guess you could throw in uh, Richie Blackmore in there. You know, I actually was was uh, listening to Michael Schenker around the same time too, because first. Shank, you know, the first UFO album came out in 73. So, you know, Shanker actually predated uh, Van Halen by a little bit. But that album just changed the face of guitar playing forever. So, uh, you know, obviously, <laughs> like everybody else, is trying to figure out how he did that. You know, you, you heard these notes and these intervals and these notes, and you weren't quite sure how he was doing it. And, you know, of course, back then, they, we didn't have uh, MTV or uh, we didn't have YouTube, so there was very little of him, um, you know, you know, visual, um, visual of him playing back then, you know, you had to go, you had to go see him live and then, ah, you saw him tapping, you know, uh, or bending a note and putting his finger down on the fretboard, you know, higher than the note. But I, like millions of others of players, you know, tried to emulate some of that playing, but I, I, you know, I, I couldn't get it, you know, <laughs> uh, I was a blue, I was a very, blues-based player. As I mentioned, I, you know, I started playing, um, you know, first, first people I started listening to were blues-based guys. As I mentioned, the Big Four and guys like uh, Robin Trower and Pat Travers and Johnny Winters, they, they, they were mostly blues-based playing. When Ed came out, it was, I, I got I to gotta step up my game or 
I'm going to get uh, left in the dust, you know. That's what it was like trying to figure out Van Halen stuff in the early days. It was very difficult. Well, Mark, anything else that you want to share? I, I really do appreciate uh, what you've told us. That, that's some definitely uh, nice inside information about Ed that a lot of people probably never heard before. Well, I did post a couple of pictures of Ed and I uh, driving recently They're on my Facebook page, so your listeners can go and find me on Facebook and uh, see that post. And I'm mourning his loss just like millions of other people are. You know, I'm trying to process it, you know. It's almost unbelievable to think that he's not here on this earth. But uh, I'm sure the heavens are rocking uh, harder than ever with him up there. And, you know, I feel very blessed that um, I I was able to, to call him a friend. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mark. You take care. Thanks so much. So, Jason, one cool thing that I thought that Key Marcello brought up was uh, the keyboards in hard rock and heavy metal. And it was really interesting because when you think of jump, you know, he kind of mentioned that without jump, there's no final countdown. It's just something that you don't think about. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, over the years in interviews that you, you see with Eddie, there were a lot of things that he actually wrote on the keyboard or piano. And then, which is weird because he's really a guitar player. They're figuring things out on the guitar and then they build it around that. So he kind of had to if, translate, if you will, from the piano and then create the guitar parts. Brilliant, brilliant musician. And, you know, th- that's the other thing, too, is that when it comes to his, his guitars, he always said, and, you know, I watch it now over and over on YouTube and in different interviews that he's done, there, there's 12 notes. Mm-hmm. There's, there's yeah. no rules. People say, that, oh, there's rules. You have to do this. And uh, Why? That's the best part of music is that there should be no rules. You make it however you want. Those 12 notes can go anywhere they need to go. I think it's just amazing that he did what he did and, and how he did it. And he didn't care if, well, there's not supposed to be keyboards and heavy metal music. It's not right. Who says? Yeah, exactly. I mean, Eddie Van Halen is a guitar god. There's no question. If he wants to change it up, that's what's going to happen. And by then, by like 1984, the, 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 the album 1984, he had already done keyboards earlier on a different album. People forget that sometimes. Mm-hmm. So for that to be, oh, my God, it's mainstream. It's what You're going to ruin heavy metal. No, you're not. You're just making it the way you want. There's no ruining music. There's just different kind of music. Yeah, exactly. And it was cool to hear from Mark Ferrari about kind of things that Eddie was into besides music. So he was big into bowling. He liked to go bowling. He was really into cars. And that was one thing that Mark Ferrari mentioned is like, hey, everybody always wanted to talk with him about guitar. So he kind of blew those people off. But he, he liked to hang out with me because we wanted to talk about cars. So that was pretty cool. That's very cool. And in fact, if it weren't for cars, there would have been no Sammy Hagar in the show. In the game. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, because Sammy's car and, and Eddie's car was in the shop, and Sammy happened to have his car in the same shop, and the shop owner knew them both and said, hey, Eddie, what's going on? You seem kind of down. And he's like, well, it's Foster, our lead singer, man. And he's like, well, you should call Sammy Hagar. He's like, well, yeah, he, you should call him. Here's his number. He did, and the rest is history. you got to figure, if it wasn't for his love of cars, who would have been the second lead singer of Van Halen we just don't know <laughs> wow well that's that's pretty wild all right so here we're going to queue up the next two interviews we've got Tracy G uh who was played with Dio and Ronnie Latakro one of my favorites uh from TNT so Tracy how important was uh, Eddie Van Halen as a guitarist uh, to you he was pretty important he was one of my main probably my main you know one of one of my main influences along with many others but 
He was he was pretty big. Um, a lot of other guys that I like, I didn't actually get to meet them or see them really, really close. But Eddie, I got to meet when I was really young. I got to meet him and I, and I got to see him play in very small situations. You know, little little bars, little clubs, all the way up to the arenas. I saw him, but I mean, I got to see him evolve as a player. And, uh, when you were watching him in these early days, was it pretty clear that this guy was going to become a superstar? Definitely. Um, it was hard to imagine them or, or him or, or the band accomplishing what they did because it was pretty big what they accomplished. But you, you knew they were, I, I thought they were better than everybody else locally and even big bands back then. They were, they came across like a really professional band and they had everything, full package. And of course, a guitar player that was just like no other. So, you know, all the stars were aligned and they were already better than everybody. And I, I don't know if even them, even they could imagine what they accomplished, you know, as far as how big they got and worldwide and household name and the whole trip, you know. So, yeah, it was obvious. What was Eddie like as a person? Um, I, met him when I, I met him, only met him a couple times, you know, actually got to talk to him. And it was very, very regular, very normal, very down to earth. I met him when I was 16, so he was 20. And um, it was before a show. And we just talked about amps and uh, where he where he found his lead singer. The lead singers are always kind of hard to find. So he told me that story in a... Uh, Real normal, just a real normal guy, you know. I just go, kind of followed his career ever since I met him and once I saw him play. I just kind of went to all his gigs and bought all his records and, you know, tried to figure out his licks and like everybody else, you know. What were some of the things that he did on guitar that um, that inspired you or that you emulated? Yeah, a lot. When I first saw him, when I was six, he came out playing an Ibanez Destroyer. Wood grain, uh, no finger tapping, no whammy bar, no uh, electrician's tape, just his pedal board, his ass, and it's pretty much added picking, his way of picking, you know, alternate picking. But his scales and his finger patterns weren't like the normal guy, weren't like what I was learning. There was like uh, pentatonic patterns stuck together so he so he played like it wouldn't play like two patterns within one lick he had extra extra long extra long fingers pretty good stretch so he's just making up these licks that i hadn't heard yet and i hadn't heard anybody going at it like that pretty amazing so from there and i would go see him he kept adding things but he was like had a combination of like sound effects harmonic volume swells pinch uh, pinch harmonics all these cool things that I hadn't seen too many people at the time do. Pretty amazing. So all that influenced me. Uh, in, and then I seen him and he'd be having a whammy bar and he had a Strat now. Now he had a whammy bar. And he was using it a little bit different than Hendrix. Using it more like Eddie Van Halen used it. And uh, so everybody had to get a whammy bar, including me, you know, at the <laughs> time kind of thing. And uh, real inspiring. And, and then I seen him and he starts to do the finger tapping thing, you know. And it's like, he's already better than everybody. And then he comes out with that. All the guitar players of the audience are just like shaking their head going, all right already, all right already, you know. Like it's just, he's just over the top, real special guitar player. Had great rhythm, great rhythm in his solos, great tone, uh, great look. The way he stood, the way he moved, he felt everything. Nothing really looked 
cheesy and phony. It all just was real, and uh, he felt it. It's a real natural, gifted guy. When you heard the news last week, what were some of the feelings and thoughts that uh, that came to you? I knew he was kind of sick, but, you know, and then when I heard that, I don't know, he, he kind of numb, kind of bumped kind of bummed out you know he was just so so much i learned so much from him and still am and uh it's this whole feel this whole style this whole vibe so it's kind of sad it just i just i'm just sad you know i'm bummed out yeah definitely man well hey i appreciate your time all right brother thanks so much you take care of yourself so we had some sad news last week about eddie van halen um do you remember like the first time you heard his guitar playing yeah i remember that that was I think the first album came out a little later in uh, in the in Europe than the States. But I think I heard it in 78 and it kind of, I mean, it was a revolution. The whole sound and the whole approach to music pretty much. Uh, also, a, a guy that was smiling while he was playing guitar, that was kind of new. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. Yeah, he always did have a smile on his face, didn't he? What are some of uh, techniques that he did that you brought into your style? I mean, I, I tried some tapping techniques, obviously, because I was a kid when he came around. But, you know, I, I was going to be Ronnie Latikro, so I, I tried not to copy too much, you know. But, but some of uh, some of the digression, I would think, uh, I put into my style and also maybe the same sound approach. What are some um, songs and albums uh, of Van Halen that you really like? I think uh, Fair Warning is a great album. Uh, women and Children First. I think that's brilliant. Uh, pretty much I, I like most of their stuff until, uh, I don't know, after Dave left the band. <laughs> right, yeah, that, that, that a lot of fans definitely uh, probably agree with you on that. Did you ever get a chance, mm. did you ever get a chance to meet him, Ronnie? Unfortunately, I didn't ever met him, but uh, I know Tony Arnell, the singer of TNT, he met him uh, on one or two occasions. So now Eddie was born, he was born in the Netherlands, and I know you're in Norway, but I mean, he came from the same part of the country as you. He, I mean, we were kind of proud when he became famous because obviously over here we consider him a European guitar player, right? Right, yeah. So that went to America and became famous, kind of. So, um, and, and you know, it's not uh, it's not called Van Halen, you know, it's called Van Halen, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but the, the, the guy was a giant, you know, I mean, uh, uh, no guitar plays between him and, and uh, between Jimi Hendrix and Eddie Van Halen, maybe Frank Marino, but... Did you ever get a chance to uh, see Van Halen live? No, I didn't. So uh, quite a few of my uh, my favorite bands I never saw live, like Thin Lizzy and Van Halen. Uh, but I've seen ACDC eight, eight times. <laughs> oh, great, yeah. When you heard the news, were you kind of surprised, or did you think kind of this might happen? Because we all knew he was sick. Uh, I heard he was sick some years ago, but I kind of thought he beat the disease. So I was kind of surprised it came like uh, lightning. A lot of information's coming out now that said they were trying to piece together uh, a reunion with all the original guys, you know, with Michael Anthony in there as well. But just because of his, uh, you know, sickness, it just couldn't happen. Okay, that would have been great. Yeah, definitely. I did notice that you had a you have a new song out and a new album out. Do you want to just comment about that real quick? Yeah, it's an album I made with Leadfoot, American uh, artist. 
uh, played with the Havalinas and uh, Rockettes and uh, Cole Ledfoot. And he, uh, one of his songs uh, was on uh, one of the last Bruce Springsteen albums called uh, High Hopes. So we met some years ago and we met, made an album together called Ledfoot and uh, Ronnie the T-Crow, uh, A Death Divine, that came out uh, yeah, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I checked out the video uh, last night for Shut Up. I thought it was really good, man. It's it's a little different, obviously, for somebody who who's looking for a TNT sound, but it's uh, it's a great song. It's very melodic, and I'll put a link in the description of this uh, this video that I'm doing uh, so people can check it out. Thank you, mate. That's great. Perfect. Well, hey, thanks for your time, Ronnie. Uh, hope everything's well. I hope you're safe and healthy out there. You too. Take care. My man, and uh, you know, if there's anything, just call me. So, Jay, a couple interesting points from those interviews. I mean, Tracy G, man, he was out in L.A. He was watching the evolution of Eddie Van Halen. He was watching him before the tremolo and before the tapping. And then what he would do is, he, you know, shows that he would keep going to, he'd see this evolution. That had to be amazing. Oh, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. I mean, to see a guy, you know, probably in his teens or early 20s, teens most likely, just you know, making his way up in the 70s. And you you go back to the 70s, the influences at that time, you know, you had, I mean, Hendrix is already gone, so you're you're probably your Led Zeppelins and things like that. And to see this guy come out of nowhere and just build his chops, because all he did was play back then. That's all the guys, they went everywhere and played every club and every backyard. I mean, Gray Romanoff's book is just an amazing book about how the band you know, turned into what it was and to be a fan or to be a spectator and watch this happen, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, that's awesome. You know, you if you could go back in time, you wish you could go and see how these guys developed and, and become better musicians and uh, better better showmen too. I mean, going back to that, those days, Roth is trying all sorts of new mm-hmm. things to try and, you know, get his band out there and, and, take notice and wow amazing amazing time yeah another thing uh ronnie latikro made a good point about um you know he always looked at eddie as being a european guitarist because you know they're relatively from the same area of the world and then we always think of kind of eddie as being from la so that was thought that was an interesting point yeah you know he said well eddie was a mix i mean if you think about it sure he he had the background musician wise you know some people just pick up a guitar and that's all they know. Mm-hmm. Well, he knew other instruments. His father was a musician, so he knew what the basics were, and he brought that with him into this genre. And then, you know, so he was, we say L.A., and that's where he grew up mostly, and, and that was an influence. His father was an amazing musician, so that influence there as well made a big difference. You can, you can see it in the playing. You, you can hear it in the playing. Another thing that I thought was cool, and obviously we all know this, but Eddie Van Halen was always smiling. And you know, and he said you didn't see that much at that point. And if you do, you think back to um, Richie Blackmore, Jimmy Page, you know, they were a little bit more serious. I, didn't, I don't think those guys smiled a lot. That's a great point. You know, once MTV came along and you got to see them more, I mean, it's hard to... You, you go back to the 70s and early 80s, and, and the only way you saw these guys was to see them in concert. Yep. And they're up there performing, and, you know, they have certain expectations. But, I mean, even in concert, you go back, and 
you watch the videos or you're, you know, you're relatively close enough to see them in concert. You're right. And he's always smiling. He was up there just having fun. You wonder how much it was effortless for him. I mean, he obviously played a guitar all the time, all the time played a guitar. But if you go to it and just look at the raw parts of it, he was having fun. And why not smile? <laughs> if, if, if it's something you love and you enjoy making people happy and they enjoy your music, how can you not smile? Oh, I agree 100%. Well, we'll queue up two more. Uh, we got J.J. French from Twisted Sister and Jay Pepper from Tiger Tales, a U.K. glam band. Here we go. Okay, so I've got J.J. French on the line with me, and he just wrote something uh, about Eddie for Vintage Guitar Magazine. I'm going to read that, and then we'll jump in. So uh, there are millions of guitar players. There are thousands of really good guitar players. There are hundreds of really great guitar players. And then, like a pyramid, there is an elite group very near the top as you climb this mountain, whose style is so unique that you know who they are immediately when you hear them. Santana, B.B. King, Dwayne Eddy, Chuck Berry, Keith Richards, Jeff Beck, and Albert King come to mind. But at the very top, where Zeus resides, there exists the most astonishing guitar players of all. This select group created a language and a pathway that did not exist before they took their first breath of life. That group consists of Django Reinhardt, Jimi Hendrix, and Eddie Van Halen. Like athletes who break world records, these special guitar players have shown us where we can go when we thought that there was nowhere else to go. These players broke the rules by steamrolling over them. These giants gave us a new language. There is no higher recognition that can be given. Eddie Van Halen now resides with the gods of guitar. That's a very wonderful piece that you wrote about, Eddie. What can you say about him, J.J.? Well, uh, I can tell you this. Uh, in February of 1978, Twisted Sister was playing in the bars of Long Island and New Jersey. And we were fighting the good fight. Disco was taking over the airwaves. And there was really no rock bands out there. And we felt kind of all alone fighting this fight for metal. We were sitting in the dressing room of a club called Zaffy's, Z-A-F-F-Y-S, in Piscataway, New Jersey. And it was this one particular night in February, and the DJ, the rock DJ for the club, played two records. He played Judas Priest, same class, with the opening track, Exciter, and he played Van Halen's debut album with Eruption. Now you have to remember, these two albums had come out that week, at the same time, for those of you who need to put context into this conversation, when we heard Exciter by, by Priest, we were like, what the hell is that? <laughs> oh my God, that's astonishing. Rob Halford's voice, Les Big's drums, guitar playing was ex exceptional. And then Eruption came on, and we went, what the hell is that? <laughs> it was So those two records ushered in the next wave of, of metal. And for people who are looking further for more context, Back in Black did not come out for another year and a half. So we're talking about the two albums that literally changed things. And if one wants to take a really broad view of Shredders and all the guitar players that came after Eddie that, that wanted to sound like Eddie, the Shredders began with that album because Eddie created the entire tap system and um, the super fast playing and the whammy bar, and it all came crashing down 
was smells like team spirit uh, when Nirvana wiped the face of the earth with everybody, <laughs> like completely wiped them all off the map and caused all the shredders to like disappear, sell their guitars and either go into hiding or trade them in for uh, acoustic guitars. So, uh, and that was, you know, much, much later, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, I think 88, 89, somewhere around there. So for 10 years, what Eddie Van Halen did was he created generations and legions of guitar players around the world in that style. And that's what makes him so important. You know, Jimi Hendrix is spectacular. And uh, for those of you who don't know who Django Reinhardt is, he may be the greatest jazz player of all. Um, you should look it up, Django Reinhardt. I also should have mentioned the classical player, Andre Segovia, because he's mm -hmm. also yeah. pioneered Spanish guitar, the likes of which no one has ever heard since. And these guys pioneered for their genres things that never uh, heard before. But Jimi Hendrix pioneered the sound of a Stratocaster into a Marshall amp with distortion and a whammy bar and, and found a language nobody heard before. And then Eddie Van Halen came along and took it to another level. So when it comes to guitar players who are inspirational, who created dreams, who made more people want to go out and buy a guitar and play a guitar and emulate who they are. That's who Eddie Van Halen is. And uh, I'm just shocked. I can't say I'm surprised. I know people close enough to the organization that have informed me over the years about his treatment. So I can't say that I'm completely stunned that it happened, but it's still in all a tremendous loss. I did see Van Halen um, open for Black Sabbath, I believe around 1979. Mm -hmm at Nassau Coliseum, and uh, it was spectacular to watch it. They were on fire. I thought they pretty much blew Sabbath off. I thought Ozzy didn't have his best stuff that night, you know, and I thought David Lee Roth was just on fire and spectacular. Um, but then Helen was a, was a treat to see them. But it never, it never wound up that we crossed paths. Even when we were out in Los Angeles recording Stay Hungry and Come Out and Play, uh, they were on the road. Just things never materialized at MTV parties who never crossed paths. However, I have close friends who, who knew him, and he was a pure artist. Mm -hmm. He was absolutely a pure, dedicated musician. He didn't want to get himself involved in the business. You know, for me, I'm more of a business guy. I have a book coming out called Twisted Business, The Soul of Twisted Sister and the Art of Reinvention, which tells the story of how Twisted Sister made it. Um, we had a very different agenda because we didn't party at all. And, um, and we talk about it in the book. I also have a podcast coming out, uh, starting up really soon called The French Connection, nice. All Things Music and More. And that will happen soon. So for those who want to follow me, um, either in the book or with the podcast, you will be able to, um, I'm on Twitter at JJ French and I can be reached in a lot of different ways. One thing like you have always touched on is like you, you're very involved with the business end of it. You know, in the years to come, there will be a lot of business to take care of for Eddie Van Halen's estate. I mean, do you agree? Uh, yeah. And um, I don't know how much Wolf, uh, Wolfgang, Wolfie, is going to do. Um, he is probably going to be in charge of a lot of it. I know he has a new album. He has a debut album coming out. Mm -hmm. And um, he's excited with that. I know that Van Halen's manager was Irving Azoff. Uh, Azoff manages the Eagles. And he's a legend in the music industry. Um, so if anyone has to look to somebody to advise and consent, they have the best of the best. Don't forget, they're out, they're out in Los Angeles. They're, there's great business managers and managers out there, and I think that the, um, uh, the estate will be cared for. But also remember with Van Halen, the estates, I'm sure the original four guys, Alec, Eddie, uh, you know, Dave, Michael, Anthony, all have their own representatives. So let's just hope they all get along and there's no lawsuits that go 
<laughs> flying around all over the place. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it, it is sad. You know, obviously the whole the whole situation is very sad. But when a status of an artist, you know, when you're here, obviously, you know, you're a legend no matter what. But then when you pass. Um, a lot of times you, you go into a whole new level. Eddie Van Halen, I believe, is really at the same kind of a level as, as Hendrix and Morrison and Bowie and Freddie Mercury. I think he's right up there with all the greats. I, I would not disagree. I wouldn't put Eddie, I wouldn't have said what I said about Eddie Van Halen if I did not believe in my bones that he resides with the gods. He's right up there. He is to rock and roll as important as Chuck Berry was, as important as, as Jimi Hendrix was as you know the, the, these guys are immortals and uh, they speak a language and eddie is an immortal i mean look you have to just say who inspired more guitar players i'll tell you a, a guitar player who's inspired a ton of people he would not necessarily be considered a great player but you couldn't deny his influence is ace freely yeah i agree um ace may not be amongst the top you know 20 guitar players t- on a technical standpoint but how could one deny his influence? I think probably more kids, more kids wanted to become rock stars because of Ace and Eddie than almost any other guitar player. Yeah, I agree. I can say that. I, I could really say that without any, I, and if anybody argues with me, I, I, I would tell them, you're crazy. I mean, how do you deny Kiss's impact? And how do you deny Ace's impact as a guitar god, you know, as yep. an inspiration? But, in turn, but that is almost from an image standpoint. You know, Ace had the image down. Eddie had the image and he had the chops and that's what makes Eddie so unique and, and Eddie will start topping the list of greatest guitar players well JJ I really appreciate your insight and your time sir well listen thank you very much anytime I can say a good word about somebody who's just a good guy and, and just a legendary musician I'm more than happy to do it well hey Jay tell me what Eddie Van Halen uh, meant to you as a guitarist Oh, well, I mean, like everyone growing up in the 70s, you know, before that you had, uh, you know, some great guitar players, um, Richie Blackmore and all that kind of thing, you know, Jimmy Page and, and obviously the guys who kind of started all Chuck Berry and people like that. But um, I always remember my, you know, my parents saying, oh, you should listen to Hank Marvin from The Shadows. I don't know if you guys ever heard those over there, but they were like big in the 60s over here, really big and... um Hank Martin was their guitar player. They said, you should listen to him, you know, what he's playing. And then I heard the, the first Van Halen album, and obviously, like most people, like Eruption, and I was just like, mate, do you know what I mean? What, what are you doing? It's just like every, everybody else now they'll give up because it, it, this is just insane, you know. You, you started playing the violin on the guitar, really, is what it sounded like. Mm-hmm. So it was just, it was like a reset button as, as soon as that album came out. And, and everybody followed them, followed him, you know, and and he led led the way. I mean, it, it was just groundbreaking, unbelievable. When you were uh, going as a guitar player, did you ever try any some of those uh, Eddie tricks? Oh, we all did, you know. I mean, <laughs> and, and you know, you can the hair metal bands particularly, and I'm, I'm talking everyone. And I remember seeing an interview with David Lee Roth when he played. They played over here. They played the. Uh, it's called Download. Now, back then, it was called Castle Donington Monsters of Rock Festival. I think it was '84. I was there. And David Lee Roth did an interview and he said, yeah, we'll, we'll, when Van Halen comes on, we'll watch everybody before us playing Eddie's solo, you know, insinuating that all the guitar players were copying him. Well, of course they were, because, you know, I, I'm not ashamed of that. And, and a million other guitar players, you know, did that kind of stuff. And we all have it in our solos and, you know, started tapping the fretboard because he led the way and he showed everyone a, a different way of playing those same scales, same licks, you know, that everybody was playing. Um and, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's you know, it's loads of our songs as as there are a million bands. Is there an album that uh, you liked from Van Halen uh, the most? I, I've always been about you know the riffing. So um, 
is it fair warning where it opens with it and change, you yes, know, yep. that. And, yeah, I mean, that just, that, I think he's doing like a drop D thing, whatever going on there. And um, I, I was all about that kind of stuff. It was his, his riffs, you know, with the beginning of uh, him talking about love, that kind of the harmonic kind of riffing that he did. I know everyone used to blow everyone away with the solos. And, and, I, and I, you know, I loved that too. But it, I don't know. It was the way he captured that sound. And, and almost like they were leaving mistakes on the record, you know, the early stuff. And I thought that was great. You know, you weren't worried about playing duff notes or stuff because that's what happens, you know. You can make it all perfect if you want to, but there was very few bands that would, and quite often they wouldn't even have like a rhythm guitar under his solos. You know, a lot of bands, even if they were three-piece bands or just just a one guitar player band, they would always put a rhythm guitar under his solos. He never did that, you know. But it, it was the, the riffs for me, I think. You know, ain't talking about love unchained and and oh, so many more. Loved that, absolutely loved it. Yeah, you make an interesting point because a lot of people always talk about the solos, but yeah, he he could do it all, man. He definitely had the riffs for sure. Oh, that was it for me, and you know, and and, and I'm not just talking about the, the you know the, the the heavier kind of riffs, but it was the um, like it's Van Halen two, you know, the uh, dance the night away. I mean, um, that kind of the lovely warm riff, you know, with the harmonic on it and all that sort of stuff it was it was just it was beautiful you know and um panama you know the way he gets those harmonic stuff and you know in those riffs i mean just that that for me was just you could almost hear the tubes squeaking in his amp you know because they were burning so loud i i loved it you could you could hear that going on and then the pick scraping the strings you know yeah, you know, the twiddly stuff, and once you, I mean, the trouble is all that hammer-on stuff, he's great, you know, and, and there are people who took it, like, to another level, um, there's another guy, I can't remember, uh, guy, is it Stanley Jordan or something, I don't know, he does, he's even, like, more insane all over the fretboard, and, um, you know, people took it even further, and for me, actually, the person who then went on and, and made it his own in a different way, in a more classical, it was Randy Rose, that, mm-hmm. he kind of, whilst Eddie kind of set the bar, I thought other people took it in another way then. Randy Rose created something else for me because his stuff really was classical, you know, the scales he was playing. He's doing stuff like, yeah, you know, he he, he did the tapping off Eddie Van Halen, but he's now turned into something else that nobody else was doing. So you've got this guy now playing all these kind of weird classical scales and just, you know, being influenced obviously by Eddie's tapping. Suddenly now he's doing something completely different, but it sounds just orchestral and that's awesome as well, you know, so... I've never been ashamed about doing that stuff. I mean, you know, what's there to be ashamed of? That's, that's what I grew up on. Those are my influences. Of course, I'm going to be able to lean on those people to play, you know, to learn from and, you know, nick licks like we all do. That's what everyone does. So, yeah, I use it. it's just incredible. I mean, you, you can't understate how important he was to, you know, the evolution and, and furthering of the guitar playing. Incredible. Yeah, he definitely influenced a whole generation of guitar players. Yeah, absolutely. You, we all take it for granted, you know, and he, he was a total game changer, as you say, like Hendrix did, and some of those people. He, there's some people, you know, there's a, there's a million bands that should have been big, but they weren't for whatever reason, you know, business, management, record companies, or whatever. But sometimes people that are so different and talented come along, they were always going to be successful. And for, for me, that's the difference. You know, Eddie Van Halen, whether he was in Van Halen or some, somebody else's band, that guy was always going to change the way everybody played because, you know, he messed around with the amps, the guitars. You know, people forget about the, you know, the wang bar, things like that. You know, whammy bar on a guitar. Before that, you still have a, a lot of them, like the Fender Stratocaster. You have a, a wangy bar that doesn't have a lock in that. Well, mm-hmm. he did that. You know, he was like led the way and said, well, I, I, we don't want that. I want to bend the thing down. It's got to come back and stay in tune. So he, 
created the lock-in that the, the drop D thing was. That wasn't his gig, you know, but he made that into the tremolo thing so he could drop his D still on a lock guitar, you know. And the amps, you know, he, he did things with the power soak and all that sort of stuff, you know, dropped the, the voltage in the amps and, and the pickups and just, 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 you know, evolution and uh, a total game changer. He was always going to be successful and, yeah, everyone's taken him for granted and now he's gone, everyone's like, oh my God, how good was he, you know? Yeah. Incredible in every way. Yeah, definitely. Well, hey, Jay, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on Eddie Van Halen with us. Yeah, absolutely, no problem, Mike. Okay, so we just heard from JJ and Jay, <laughs> so um, some interesting points. Uh, one of them is about the business. You know, we talked about the business of Van Halen in the future. I mean, when you think of the estates of John Lennon, Freddie Mercury, Jimi Hendrix, you know, once this legend passes, there's a lot to figure out in the years ahead. Yeah, I, I read somewhere, and don't quote me, I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that Eddie was at one point worth over $100 million. Wow. Um, and I think that's a low estimate, to be honest with you. But it all depends on what his estate, where he left things. You know, does everything go to his wife? Does, you know, the music go to his son and his brother? I mean, does his brother now take over as, you know, caretaker of the Van Halen brand and name? You know, what about uh, David Lee Roth? You know, it, it all depends on how um, the contracts were all laid out and who does what. If you hop onto YouTube, there is a great behind-the-scenes tour of the 5150 studio. Now, not great in the fact that, oh, it was such a great production, you got to see everything. It was just a, basically a walk-around with one of the reporters from MTV, um, who is now like on um, CBS or something like that and does stuff for CBS Sunday morning. They were probably highlighting the Van Halen tour in 98 with Gary Sharon, okay. you know, trying to give it some, some push. So they went, they basically what happens is they probably had a crew with a boom mic, some a light and a top light on a camera and a guy holding the camera on his shoulder. And they walked around 5150 Eddie's studio. And, you know, it's a great thing on YouTube if you get a chance to watch it. And in it, they talk about um, how they had like a Radio Shack computer, I think it was, that had the catalogs for this humongous wall of two-inch tape, the old reel-to-reel two-inch thick tape, where I learned on in a recording studio back when I was in college. I worked in a recording studio. That was my um, work-study job, uh, being a music minor. And it was so cool to work in a studio like that. So the, he had probably a two-story wall full of two-inch tape. You would literally have to get onto a ladder to get to the top of this thing. And it was just tape after tape after tape. And he said, our computer that cataloged all of this died. We took it to a tech guy. He couldn't get it going again. He goes, so I have probably weeks and weeks worth of tapes up there that I don't know what's on. I'd have yeah. to, and he would have had to have taken it down listened to it and recataloged it all. And that was back in 1998. So you've got to wonder how much of that is sitting around still uncataloged. And does Alex, does David Lee Roth, does Wolfie, do they sit down and put those things? And how much of that stuff can you still put down on a reel-to-reel and listen to? You know, how many reel-to-reels are still left? You've got to wonder there's all this uncatalogued music that could be sitting there. You know, if you're Alex or if you're Wolf or his, you know, Danny or 
Valerie or whomever's in his life that controls that kind of stuff. Do you want it out there? You know, it's it's just crazy. I mean, the the line of the business here, Mike, is is unbelievable. And then you get into a philosophical debate. I mean, that's probably unbelievable music that is just sitting there. And that's how we got some of the later Van Halen stuff with Sammy. It was already written. It was written for the next album before Roth left. So, you know, a couple of albums down the road, and he goes, hey, I got this thing, you know, and he plays it, and Sammy goes, I love that. Then they bring the the reel-to-reel down, put it on, and like, wow, man, we can do something with this. And there's all that untapped music. So you got to wonder, Mike, is that something down the road that somebody does, and there's your business angle. Yeah, exactly. A big topic lately online is a tribute concert. Uh, Jay, what do you think? Do you think they should do a tribute concert? Oh, my gosh, yes. How could you not? Right, I agree. Like I said, we're going on two weeks here since he died, and people are still talking. We're doing a podcast. There are podcasts everywhere. It just came out just the other day, just yesterday. Sammy spoke up and talked and talked at length about how he reconciled with Eddie, and they wanted to keep it quiet because they didn't, you know, didn't want it to come out that oh maybe there'd be a, a reunion tour. Eddie was in no shape for a tour. No. I don't know if you saw this, and yes, I yep. thought it was amazing that um, George Lopez, a mutual friend, George Lopez, the comedian, you know, was playing golf with Eddie, and said, and and Eddie told him that, geez, I really love to hear from him, but he hasn't called, and so he told Sammy, and Sammy's like, well, I didn't think you wanted to hear from me, and he's like, call him, so he did, and God, it was a love fest from there on out, and that warms your heart. Because you don't ever want to see anybody hate someone. No. You don't want to see that, you know, forever. And, you know, I don't know Sammy personally, but, and, and, and I have nothing against David Lee Roth. I enjoyed Sammy's stuff, and, you know, not a lot of people that love Roth like that angle, but I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I got to meet him. Nice guy. Um, and, you know, and you know, you can make an impression. You can be still be a joke, but he was a nice guy. And in and, and, and subsequent, you know, interviews and things that I've seen, he still seems like he's a nice guy. To know that that was weighing on him, and they were able to reconcile and, and have some good conversations, it, it is something that's important. But getting back, I get off track here. I sorry. Oh man, that, you're fine. <laughs> get, it's it, getting it back on track. There has to be a tribute concert. The question then becomes, who does it? Who's in charge of it? And who's in charge of picking the people that's going to play sure. and the bands that are going to play? And when are we going to get to do this? I mean, Sammy just oh, did yeah. a pay-per-view. Yep. You know, Sammy just did a pay-per-view for his, his birthday bash in Cabo. Does it end up being a pay-per-view concert? I hope not. Um, I'd like to be able to see it. It's, it's one of those things that how do you pick who's going to play? And you better have, if you're going to have that concert, you better have Sammy in the circle and you better have David Lee Roth in yes. his group. And you'd hope to God that someone at least invites Alex and Wolfie to be a part of it and be there. I don't know. That brings you to the next question. Will Alex ever play again in a band? Right. I mean, he never played with anybody but Eddie. No. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, I mean, probably, I would imagine he's probably done. Um, but who knows? You just don't know. The interesting part is, is, could it be something, I mean, it can't be something like Queen, where, all right, we're done all right, we'll play a little bit. All right, well, we found Paul Rogers, you know, did a tour with them. Yep. And and then Lambert there is 
they're saying it in their plan, but you can't replace Eddie. No. no. Alex and Wolfie could play, or Alex and Michael, and you bring a Sammy or you bring a David, but who's going to play the guitar? Oof. You know, maybe you do a couple, maybe they come up on, if they did a tribute concert and could get everybody involved and everybody would just play, um, you do a few sets with David Lee Roth and Michael Anthony, and then you bring in Sammy, and you have a guest guitar player play a couple of songs from each. Yep. You know, yeah, that yeah, would be amazing. But how and when? Because that's going to be, it's going to be sore and raw for a long time. I've never seen a tribute go so long. You, you lose a movie star, you lose an important um, political figure, you lose some sort of icon in life, and they go three, four, five days, and then everybody moves on with life. This is different. I've never seen anything like it. Can you attribute COVID to it? Maybe. Maybe everybody's just ultra-tuned into things because there's not a lot to do in life. But, wow, I mean, a tribute concert would be amazing, and I hope that they can do it and do it right. I agree. Um, and then one cool point that came out of the Jay Pepper interview is, uh, like I said, I always expected everybody to talk about the solos, but he mentioned the riffs. And you really got to think back to these riffs. I mean, they are iconic. They're classic. You're hearing them now all on NFL and everything. You just, you, they're classic riffs. Oh, they are. The cool part is, is I think really Eddie made that. I'm sure other guitarists did that a lot. And you would never see, like, when I was growing up, and when I, after I graduated from college, I hooked up with a couple of guys. We got into a band, and we recorded a CD. I went to College of St. Rose in Albany, and they had a recording studio. That's where I worked. And we went back and recorded it. And in overdubbing and laying layers down when you're recording music, there's the little things you add when you overdub, right? And it's that underlying guitar line. You look at, like, Def Leppard. They'll have the basic tracks, and then you hear that, you know, ding, 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 or, or they just add another layer of guitar, like in the overdubs, and then, you know, they've got two guitar players in the band, so one plays one, one plays the other. But Eddie's himself. Eddie did it along with main line. Mm -hmm. You know what yep. I'm saying? Yep. So you got the chords in there, and he's got these little lines in there that you go, wow, man, who thought of that? Where does that come from? Why would you think of that? And he made, I, I really believe that he made that a standard in heavy metal. Like, if you're going to, you can just bang away at the guitar, but it's those little nuances that really make a song. And boy, he was so good at that. I'm sorry, in my lifetime, there, there will never be another Eddie, and there never was another Eddie. There are some amazing guitar players out there, don't get me wrong. You know, Satriani, Steve Vai, I mean, you know, Yngwie Malmsteen, yep. but, and those just three, you know, but, and there are so many other good ones, and they all will pay homage to Eddie Van Halen because he, he revolutionized the, the way you play. And, We'll never see another one. I mean, it's kind of sad in the aspect that you won't see another one. What is there left to revolutionize? I hope we see something like that. I hope there's a kid somewhere that comes along and does something that we've never heard before. But keepers, I, I think we we owe it all to Eddie. And, you know, the fact that it's still unbelievable that he's gone. Yeah, it is. 
So the last two we had up were uh, Steve Blaze from Lillian Axe and Mark Kendall from Great White, and we'll roll those now. Well, Steve, we've got a special episode about Eddie Van Halen. Any thoughts, memories you want to share? Well, thanks for having me on, man. It's good to talk to you again. And, um, yeah, I have uh, a lot of memories, man. I tell you, the first one is uh, I had not even heard a song or even knew who Van Halen was, and I I won. Uh, They used to do the call-in radio, you know, 10th Mm -hmm. caller wins this and that. And uh, I won a five-song vinyl, now not just vinyl, but red vinyl, five-song promotional copy of Van Halen 1. It had eruption. You really got me... um, Ain't talking about love, Jamie's crying, and uh, I think we're running with the devil on it and it was red so i mean you can imagine if i still had it what that would be worth today oh, definitely. and um so i won it and i listened to it you know in my in my head all i kept picturing was you know van halen being you know a dutch band and the guitar player looking like the guy on the cover of the lucky charms box you know <laughs> with the top hat on and dutch boots playing guitar you know so i didn't know what to expect and then i listened to it and they came to town soon after that on the Monsters of Rock show, and I got to see them. They actually opened up. It was Boston, uh, let's see, Blue Oyster Cult, Heart, Nazareth. Uh, I think Sammy Hagar was on that, and uh, a few other bands. It was an all-day rock and roll show, and they were the openers, and we got to see them. And it was like, you know, from then on, it was just like, just so unique and just such great catchy songs and you know what, what can you say about eddie you know he just his style is is just amazing it, it you know people like you try to figure out what makes a guitar player great and there is nothing you can't you can't put it down there's a million guys out there that can play lightning fast and can play great and do this it's not about that it's about that individual's control of the guitar and what he can make that thing the conviction in which he plays and how he is able to phrase and make that guitar sing that reaches people and it's unique and he had his thing and he's just such a great control of his instrument and great songs that's what it comes down to you know um if you don't have great songs you you'll be known as a great guitar player and and get in line with the uh, ten thousand other great guitar players but when you are part of a, a a group that makes such great memorable songs and you just have that star quality about you, you become a legend and that's what we have here. It's it's kind of it's really depressing, and, and it kind of numbs you out a little bit. But I also have this kind of uh, peacefulness that you know I know he's in a better place, and I know um, I'm appreciative of what he has been able to uh, give us as a gift all these years. So it's kind of bittersweet. Yeah. What was it like seeing him live in those early days? Were you just blown away by what he was doing? Man, in the early days, I was blown away by everybody. That <laughs> <laughs> was yeah, like right. it. You know, it's like, wow, this is great. This is great. I love it. I love it. I love it. I, when I first started going to concerts as a teenager, I was, I never really paid, even though I was playing guitar since I was six, I was more like just blown away by more of that overall vibe of a live concert with all these people. I didn't like spend my whole time staring at one individual, just staring at the guitar player. I was like soaking it all in. It was like just one big bombastic thing hit me and it's it was great so i kind of you know if i could go back i probably would have been a little bit more you know like paying a little more attention to what eddie was doing on certain things and stuff i just you know you knew he was great but you know i was more interested in the songs and and the volume and uh them running around and crowd going crazy you know but 
you know, every time I saw him, he was just so, it was, um, like with all great guitar players, it's effortless, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, it's what I do, you know? Some people can cook real well. Some people can, you know, take an engine of a car apart. Some people are great philosophers. Some people are great authors. And some people are great guitar players, you know? And a handful of them uh, get, you know, are able to create material that it stands the test of time and reaches lots of people and makes them happy and ed was one of those you know it's it's kind of sad it's, you never even thought he was 65 he always kind of felt like eddie van halen was always like in his 30s or something <laughs> no matter how you know much time went by because he was always smiling and yeah. seemed like he was always happy and a good mood and he that was his thing he loved playing guitar you know guys that just love doing it like that they're the ones that that stand out they're the unique ones when you think about some of the music, uh, will, will that first album always be your favorite, or do you gravitate to another album? I think, you know, to be honest with you, um, I think if I had to, you know, it's hard for me to, to really pick an album out and say that's my favorite, because they, they all had their, their, their unique moments. I think maybe the second album might be my favorite, mm -hmm. if just maybe just ekes out a couple of the other ones. That's probably the one that I would... Uh, I always go to, and then 1984 is right there too. And it's not necessarily that any of them were better than the other ones, but the, they were. When I listen to those albums, they take me to a a certain time that was that was you know really good time in my life. You know, I think that's what music does it takes you to certain times. I love 1984. That was a great time for me. That's right when Lily and Axe was really started going out and playing a lot, kind of just got together, and we were playing a lot, and we were playing, you know, lots of Van Halen and stuff, and that's when it was really exciting to be in a band trying to make it, you know? And then they came to Jackson, Mississippi, and I saw them uh, live for 1984, and it was great. It was fantastic, just fun, you know? Those guys had fun when they were playing. They're, they're all about, you know, enjoying the, the, that atmosphere, you know? Some bands have different vibes. Some bands go out and they're, you know, they're more they're epic and the lights and it's serious and it's a whole different which is all great i love that kind of stuff but when you went to see van halen it was all about smiles and having a good time and partying and uh, that's what you were into uh they were the the perfect band for that but they were just such a good you know they were loose but airtight if that makes sense definitely what's going on with you uh you, you uh, got your new album almost in the can or how's things going we are, as a matter of fact, I was, we we're in the studio recording in Malico Studio in Jackson, and we, um, we've got three songs completed. Um, everything else is, uh, most of the, the songs are written, there's a few that are in developmental stages, but it's, it's just a slow, tedious process getting into the studio. Um, right now, uh, we're, we're doing it in pieces. I'm doing it. Uh, I'm not trying to rush it, but I have a deadline. I want to have it out by next summer. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate you sharing some of those thoughts uh, and memories of Eddie Van Halen, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, man, I, I appreciate you asking me to do that, man. It's a, it's a kind of a, you know, a lot of people are really bummed out and stuff, you know, and, and rightfully so. And he's going to be uh, always uh, considered one of the greatest of all time, if that the greatest rock guitar player of all time and just you know a blessing to have him uh, and his music in our lives well steve man thanks so much good luck with all that you're doing i know you were back there in uh california when van halen was getting going uh, what kind of stories can you share about eddie and van halen well i've been friends with michael anthony for more than 30 years i you know i saw him in the early days you know the backyards and uh been invited to their video shoots and stuff like that i mean you know i wasn't like real close friends with Eddie or anything, but I, I 
was there when they first, you know, when they started. Did you catch some of those uh, shows? I know they used to play like parties and things like that. Did you catch any of those? Oh, yeah. The first time I saw him was somewhere around 1974. A friend of mine had seen him and told me about the guitar player. And they were playing like three blocks from my house in a junkyard called Tony's Junkyard. When I first walked in, the drummer was doing a solo and Dave Roth was down on the ground blowing a tube inside of the floor tom. <laughs> and it, it was making the pitch go up and down, you know what I mean? And then I was really anxious to hear the guitar player. He was, uh, he was playing a Les Paul. It was, uh, kind of before he was doing the, the tapping and I don't, believe he had a wing bar he didn't have a tremolo bar on the guitar or anything but he played like way outside of the box and he was scary good and i i just couldn't believe what i was seeing we me and my buddy you know we were kind of in a band we you know we were we were playing in backyards but we were kind of upstarts and uh and they just blew our minds we just followed them everywhere we you know they played like at a high school at a gymnasium somewhere or you know, backyard parties. I remember we paid a dollar to get in that one time, that first time, and then they started charging two dollars and, and two fifty. We thought that was like insane, but uh, <laughs> they were so good that we just kind of followed them around. And it, I, I can only say that seeing a guy that good, and there was a lot of bands around, by the way, and almost every gig I went, I saw all kinds of bands that I knew, guitar players, they were all in the crowd. Everybody was like in shock about this guitar player because he was, he was doing things we really hadn't seen before and it was, it was outside of the box. It was, uh, something a little different and, you know, he was just mind blowing the things he could do on guitar and I would go home and just practice I mean, for hours on end, just, he just inspired me to want to get better, you know, basically. And uh, I, I wasn't out to emulate him. I just wanted to improve, you know, because I was, you know, I was just a teenager and I'm kind of learning my way around. And uh, every time I went to see him, it seems like he got better and better and better. And, and uh, they played like every night. There wasn't a night you couldn't go see him play somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so that's another thing that inspired me. I go, man, these guys play. We got to play more, man. You know, we got to play more than just on Saturday. You know, we got to we got to figure this out. The main reason they played so much is because they played cover songs. So during the week, they would play in Hollywood at Gazzari's or some other club. Sometimes they played Walter Mitty's, which was a bar in Pomona, California, and and they would um, they played cover songs, and then on the weekends they would do showcases playing all original. So that was pretty cool, you know. Uh, and they they were so tight, you know. Michael Anthony, you know, I was pretty good friends with him. I'd been to picnics with his family, and you know, he invited me to pound cake video, and we played at a wedding together and stuff like that. So um, he told me one time that. They knew over 200 cover songs. Oh, my God. So, wow. You know, it was like, so all those years of playing, by the time they got signed, you know, they had a bunch of original. And I've had that demo they did with Ted Templeman for, like, over 30 years. I never played it for anybody. I never made copies. But I've had that demo that's on the Internet now everywhere, I've had for years. And... uh uh, some of those songs have never been on an album to this day. Uh, but you hear bits and pieces, like they would take one little part out of a song and put it in another one. Uh, so, it, you know, it, 
it's just pretty cool. When they when they got their record deal, I was so thrilled. You know, just to know it's possible that I, I was I couldn't wait to hear it. I was real curious on how Dave Roth would sound on the record, and he sounded great because there you know there was critics that and stuff like that that would you know talk about him not being the greatest singer and this and that. But I just thought he was such a great frontman, such a good showman. You know, Eddie was just so awesome. One thing about Van Halen that I loved was there was somehow Roth's voice fit with his guitar. It was like glue. It, 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 it was just, it was just kind of perfect in a way. So I, I always kind of liked that. You know, his range was a little limited, but he got the maximum. And the other thing I thought was good about Dave Roth was, was you believed what he was singing. He really put a lot of, uh, effort into the dynamics you know and and i and he and he was a good lyricist so it was just a great band you know but that guitar player i can just tell you he, he was uh it wasn't just me it was every guitar player around and there was a lot of great ones but no one was even close and we were all fans everybody was we were fans of this guy we couldn't believe how good he was and that was before he was doing the eruption type stuff and using the, you know, the tremolo bar and all that. This was just, just his, his skills on, on the neck. And, you know, also, what I noticed right away was his picking hand was better than anyone around in the sense he was really articulate. He played with a lot of power with the right hand and he attacked the notes and he would, he just, he was so accurate and, you know, so well rehearsed and prepared and, and, you know, and Michael Anthony told me that he never put his guitar down. He would just, he played it every day, all day, you know, sitting on his bed, you know, going to get a drink, you know, whatever. He always played guitar. He just, you know, there's a lot to say about that, how much he practiced, you know. One thing that I was thinking about, and obviously you guys came up in the 80s, the whole L.A. Uh, uh, metal scene, and sometimes I look at Van Halen as kind of like the forefathers of the glam metal scene because when you think of all these different bands, you know, everybody had, you know, a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of people had the blonde singer, the flashy guitar player, you know what I mean? I think that all kind of goes back to Van Halen. Yeah. you know, Well, they got signed in 78, and we got, when we got a... Uh, kind of a record deal, not really a record deal, in 1982, there was like, it was just a kind of a handful of bands, maybe three, four, three or four bands that got signed in L.A. Then as time went on in the 80s, you know, another one would get signed and then another, as soon as it started to get successful, that's when the, it kind of snowballed. But yeah, I, I agree with you. You know, they, when they got success, it was like, you know, the record companies are a business, you know what I mean? Yep. They want their Van Halen, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, okay, Warner Brothers signed Van Halen, so, you know, the other labels are going to want, you know, a hot band in town. So when something's successful, so you can, you're definitely right on, on point that they were the the forefathers. They, they made us realize it's possible, and especially... It was more difficult in their time because in 78, that's when New Wave was coming in, yep, yep. Um, disco, you know, uh, music, uh, rock was supposed to be dead when they came up and 
got signed. And they got signed because Ted Templeman saw them and Marshall Burrell told them about this band, you got to see this guitar player, and he actually wasn't really into doing that at the time, but he was vice president of Warner Brothers. He was a, you know, a well-renowned producer, and so he went and saw him, and he was so blown away. He talked Mo Austin into it, even though rock and roll was supposed to be dead or whatever, right. and, he, and he got it really uh, going, and once the world discovered Eddie Van Halen, it, uh, it made me realize that we were right. This guy is special, and, and you know, it, you know, the world over, including people in bands, you know, their peers ag- agreed. You know, this has been a tragic loss, and you know, when you hear people like Tony Iommi, and you know, I think that was one of their first tours ever. Yep. You know, just saying. Uh, what, how, what good friends they were and how much he appreciated how great he was. And, you know, so he had a lot of, uh, people that respected him and, and really loved him. Yeah, it was a big loss. Oh, real quick, Mark, what's going on in the world of Great White? Um, well, we just played in Mississippi. You know, it's been, uh, you know, with the pandemic and the safety issues and all that, um, it, it's been really slow this year. Mm-hmm. So we've just been spending a lot of time writing songs and uh, goofing around with our families and stuff, you know, enjoying the time off. You know, we wish it was under different circumstances, but this is the most time off I've had in like 30 years. So <laughs> I'm, I'm milking it. I'm digging it. So we're, we're taking the time to uh, write new material. You know, I was just up north. I put five songs on tape. Um, today I just sent an MP3 to my keyboard player, a new idea I have. So that's been kind of fun. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that new material. And man, I really appreciate your time. The, yeah. Those are some great stories. I mean, I can't believe it. Going to see Van Halen for $2.50 or a dollar, that, that's insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it, you know, and it, it was so obvious that this guy was really super special. I mean, you know. It wasn't, you didn't even question it when you saw him play, you're going, holy God, did you just see that? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was like jaw-dropping every moment, you know. It, it was pretty neat to be be a part of that and have him create all these memories for us. That's one thing they can't take from me is the memories. And uh, he, he definitely gave me a lot of them. Well, Mark, thanks so much, man. Thanks, Mark. Okay, so uh, we heard from Steve from Lillian Axe. We heard from Mark from Great White. Uh, a couple cool things that, that really caught my ears when I heard this was the uh, the red promo record from the 1978 album that Steve got from a radio station. Could you imagine, Jason, what that is worth today? Oh, it's worth big bucks. I mean, come on. And and it was worth big bucks before Eddie died. Oh, yeah. You know, that's just, you don't, you don't find that kind of stuff anymore. That's like when you're, when you're going around in some of these small towns and you find a record store and you're just like digging for something, you know, digging for some classic vinyl. And, it, you know, that's the diamond in the rough right there. That's an amazing, amazing, you know, that would be huge. So that's, that's a pretty cool story right there. Yeah. And um, Mark Kendall, you know, he was around kind of like Tracy G was. He was catching these guys at, you know, gymnasiums and backyard parties. You know, he mentioned, a, you know, one gig he paid a dollar. Another gig he paid $2.50. Could you imagine seeing Van Halen for $2.50? I mean, it's just, it's, it's like, what? I, it, that That's an amazing story, too. And, and, you know, when you talk about Van Halen and glam metal, you don't, 
nowadays you wouldn't ever think that. Um, even, you know, guys like in their 30s wouldn't go immediately to the name glam metal when it comes to Van Halen, but they were really the ones that kind of started it. I mean, go yeah. back to Roth. Yep. I mean, just look at them. And, you know, go to the 1984s and, you know, the albums just before, the way he dresses and the spandex and whatnot. I mean, you know, Van Halen as a band started out that way and evolved. It took a, a major right turn when it came to their image when Sammy came along. Yes. But you're right. They they were probably one of the forefathers of, of glam metal. Um, and, I mean, obviously guys after that, took it to a whole new level, you know, the poisons and things like that. Yeah, that's where it all started. And, of course, you know, the 80s brought in the spandex, the yeah. big hair and everything, and and took it to another level as well. But, yeah, that's I would agree with that 100%. Yeah, because when you look at, I mean, once again, and, and not no disrespect to people like C.C. DeVille or Mick Mars, but, but I, I can't put them in the same category as Eddie Van Halen as a guitar player, but when you look at the format of bands like Poison and Motley Crue, I mean, you could say it's very much trying to be molded after Van Halen, for sure. Oh, there's no question. I agree with that a thousand percent. And, I mean, and C.C. DeVille was an okay guitar player. He's no Eddie Van Halen, but he's also no Mick Mars. I mean, Mick Mars was... Uh, you know, an amazing guitar player. And, and if you talked about, you know, the smiling versus the serious, I, I think if Mick Mars probably smiled at this point, it, his face might break. And even <laughs> back then, he was as serious as they come. He was like the dark and, guy of the group. Yeah, for sure. Oh, there's no question. I mean, Nikki Six was always smiling, probably because he was always high. But <laughs> the point being is, is that Mick Mars was the anti-Eddie Van Halen when it came to stage appearance, but I mean, he could play and he can play. I, I don't want to you know, talk past tense, Mick Mars, but yeah, it, those guys definitely glam metal. They were led to that point by the, you know, by Van Halen. There's no question. Jason, I really appreciate all your insight, man. You really brought a lot of cool things out in this podcast. Any final thoughts or things you want to share before we wrap up? Um, just that, you know, Eddie Van Halen touched so many people. I was devastated when I heard. I, I was literally driving into the studio, and I parked the car in the parking lot, and my phone went off. And when I saw Eddie's name come up, I said, it can't be. It Because we all, for as much as we thought, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's time for one more tour. Because, you know, at 65, uh, how many guys... You know, Rolling Stones are 107 years old, and they play. <laughs> Look but at Kiss. Kiss this, is still going. Yeah, I mean, you can't live forever. And you, we, but as a fan, I held out hope there'd be a chance that I could get one more chance to see them in concert and, and or see something. Because if you go back to their last concert, you know, five years ago, I mean, Eddie was on, he was as tight and as sharp as I've seen him, probably going back to the balance tour. Okay, that's how good he was playing. I liked his playing this last tour, which unfortunately I didn't get to see. But you you watch all the video, all the stuff that he did um, live on ABC, all the stuff that's on the internet. He was as sharp and as good as I've ever seen him. So that that last tour, he was that good, and the band was that good. Gosh, that makes you smile because, and he was having fun. If you watch any of the videos, 
He's smiling the whole time. He's loving being on stage with his son and his brother and, and David Lee Roth, just loving it. You couldn't go out any better way. And we all hoped, but when I got the text and you knew it was all over, you knew that you, uh, a part of your childhood and a part of your adult life was gone, yep. that you that you loved. I mean, I literally loved that music. I still do. It's sad, but we remember him and we remember the times we had and we all smile like Eddie did. Oh, definitely. Well, Jason, I really appreciate your time with this. Uh, it was a great conversation. We definitely lost a one of a kind, but you know, his music will live on forever. Absolutely. Mike, it's been a pleasure. You take care. We'll see you soon. <laughs>